Hi, I'm Helge Pedersen. Welcome to Ride and Talk with uh, Andy Dukes. We are talking about traveling the world and meeting people and cultures on two wheels. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings, everyone. Although you may know him from his excellent travel book, 10 Years on Two Wheels, Helge Pedersen has in fact spent most of his adult life exploring the world on BMW GS motorcycles and sharing its wonders with all those who have been lucky enough to join his Globriders tours. There are so many cool stories Helge has amassed over the past four decades that we'd need a whole series of podcasts to feature them all, but we've squeezed as many of his experiences as we could into the next hour just for your listening pleasure. So sit back, relax, and let the Norwegian's soft voice transport you on a journey through 40 years of GS memories, including that infamous crossing of the Darien Gap. So Helga, welcome to Ride and Talk, on the line all the way from the west coast of the USA. I'm delighted to finally have you as our guest today. All good to talk to you, Andy. So when did your love of two wheels begin as a young guy in Norway? Who got you into bikes in the first place? Oh, it was my father. Like many uh, kids, you know, it, I think it was their parents that influenced them. And my father, he was a motorcyclist when he was young until he met my mom and crashed. And then it was, that was the end of that kind of. But he still had it in his blood. He liked it and he encouraged me. And you grew up in Kristiansand, which I believe is a port in the south of the country. Is that right? Yeah, if you look at the length of Norway, at the very bottom of Norway is Kristiansand, and that's my hometown. And I still have my sister and brother living there, and yeah, that's my home. <laughs> so did the comings and goings of ships in, in that town sort of inspire you to think about travel and distant horizons, or, or was it something or someone else? I, I read somewhere they used to spend a lot of time looking at National Geographic magazines. Yeah, it was a combination. I had uncles that was uh, uh, captains on ships, sailed all over the world. And Uncle Svein, which was my favorite guy, he came home and he had all these stories. And you also write about National Geographic because my father, he uh, uh, got a subscription on National Geographic. And you have to remember, this is a magazine I don't understand. Nothing It's in English. You know, Norway is a little country. They don't translate it. But I could see the pictures and then my father would read it and translate and tell me the stories. And that was a highlight for me, sitting uh, next to him or when I was little on his lap and seeing all of these stories from all over the world. Still love that magazine. It's good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic pictures, fantastic stories as well. So in your early 20s, you got your first BMW road bike. It was an R100 slash 7, I believe. So what was it that attracted you to the brand way back then? Because it was a nice bike for a young guy to have. Yeah, it was uh, my friend uh, Pierre Labang in Kristiansand that uh, got me into motorcycling. He and his brother, Agnar, and uh, they had motorcycles and I always wanted. So the first bike I got was a uh, Ish 49. It was a... Uh, Russian bike, then I got a TT500 Suzuki, and then I always dreamt about having a BMW because that was Pelle had, and that's how I got into that bike. 
And then a bike was launched that seemed to have been made with your travel ambitions in mind. I mean, I'm wondering whether it was destiny, you know, because tell us the background story about the R80 GS. And I, I believe you got the second one that was imported into the country, didn't you? Yes, it was. Uh, I think it was destiny, as you say, because I I worked on a helicopter service uh, in northern Norway on a Sea King helicopter and uh, as a photographer. And I was on a motorcycle tour down in Europe, and I already planned that I was going to quit my job after my contract was up, and I wanted to go traveling. And I was down in Italy, and my friend come up and said, Helge, they just got this new R80GS. They imported two. I just bought the first one, he said. And I immediately contacted the importer in Norway, in Oslo, and said, hey, put my name on uh, that one so i traded in my r8 r100 7 for the r80 gs and yeah it was just perfect because i had one more year to plan my trip and then i headed out so you had a plan for a trip and you had your gs but at the same time you also had this budding career i mean you you were already working as a photographer uh, you probably had you know quite a well-paid job doing that so there was a lot at stake you know in terms of a safe career path financial security all of those things did you think about that or were you too much focused on the escape the great escape no i thought about it a lot but i think i had it in me this adventure thing because i went to school to get my education for the photography thing and i came out best in class it was only six of us and i could kind of probably gotten a nice job with Kodak in Oslo and that was the attraction for my schoolmates but I asked or applied for the job furthest away up in northern Norway 70 degrees north called Laxell it's uh, 150 kilometers south of uh, uh, North Cape and that so it's way on top there and so I'm just looking at I'm just looking yeah at I'm look, I can yeah. see it behind you there the map but uh that job there just told me I wanted more than this adventure. I had a contract for three years and I had to decide to renew it for three more years and I could easily have done that. But then I said to myself, well, one day I'll probably get a picket fence, 10 kids and a whole enchilada, but let me do something before that. And a friend of mine had traveled to get a job in Tanzania and he said, why don't you come down and visit? So I thought, yeah, why don't I do that? <laughs> so I thought, perhaps I could drive down there. I had no clue what I was doing. But uh, that's how it all started. The dream started in that manner. Yeah, it just takes a spark of an idea, doesn't it? I mean, yep. you, so you had this new GS and you had this itch to get out and ride it. But there was no adventure motorcycling industry to speak of at that time. I mean, there were no aftermarket specialist parts, no official accessories, probably no Touratech. So how did you get this unproven bike prepared for overland travel? Again, it was my friend, uh, the BMW rider, Pelle, or Per Olobang. And uh, we sat down, looked at all kinds of magazines. We got German magazine, Motorrad, and British magazines, Scandinavian magazine. And we read these stories up through the years. And I'd seen that people were doing things, you know, they were making things. And a friend of mine at that time went to study in uh, Germany, medicine. He became a doctor later. 
and he brought back a Heinrich tank, which is a 40 liter tank, big mother. <laughs> and that's what we put on because the R80GS was not really a world traveling bike. It was an enduro off-road uh, Gelendonstrasse bike, but with a little modification. And I must say that uh, Pelle, he worked on, uh, you have to remember this is in 1981. He worked on a, a CAT system on computers, 1981 computers. And he worked for the platforms for the North Sea and stuff to make things there. So he said, okay, I constructed this. I'm gonna, we're gonna reinforce the rear subframe of the bike. You, and I'm imitating that you are flying 10 meters in the air landing, and we are gonna make a shock absorber system for these and they are going to break off when you crash because he said there has to be a fuse in every system and he's very very right about that i'm not an engineer but i think everybody understand that something have to give and he made a system that had to give that was 10 millimeter bolts that held these panniers and they broke many times during the trip when i fell but I had spare 10 millimeter bolts. It took me half an hour to fix it instead of breaking and busting the whole frame and the rest of the bike when I crashed. So that's how we started to build up. So I really have to give him all the credit for that. And it was kind of a funny story too because he was starting a family. He already had uh, kids, two kids, I think at the time. And I was camping up at his property in my little green tent, helping building the foundation, concrete work and all kind of stuff. And in the evenings, we went down to his workshop uh, where he worked and welded and uh, reinforced the bike and built up the bike. Fantastic to have an engineer like that to, to really sort of think through all the possibilities about what might happen, what could happen, and then to sort of strengthen the bike accordingly because, you know, it literally was unproven, as you say. So yeah. what about your own mechanical skills, though? I mean, I know you had the Slash 7 before, but did you know your way around a boxer engine by that time already? No, it yeah, it started with that bike, and I slowly, slowly learned stuff. Uh, from Pelle and from other friends. Uh, you know, I went, for example, I was one of those that started the BMW club in Norway. And Norway is a little country, so we are t talking uh, just a few guys that came together one day and said, hey, let's start that. And then I was riding up there. I remember uh, I crashed my bike and uh, had some problems. And, you know, there was another mechanic say, oh, you have to do this and this. Obviously, at that point, you needed to know how to do your points and your valves. That was just a given if you're going to even leave home. So uh, today, it's very different. It's actually much easier today. But slowly, slowly, I got to learn more and more. And before I took off on my big trip, I asked uh, Erwin Jans in my hometown. He was a BMW fanatic. And uh, he said, hey, Helge come out this weekend, we're going to take apart the gearbox. And I kind of rolled my eyes. Yes, sure, I'm never going to touch a gearbox. Well, he kind of took me through it and I learned something, I guess. Lo and behold, a year later, I find myself in the middle of Sair, uh, uh, which is Congo now, with a gear shifter stuck in second gear. And you get tired of riding in second gear. <laughs> he cannot get out of there. It was the spring, internal spring that broke in. And I got out my stove, got out the gearbox, 
heated up the back plate, which he had taught me. So slowly, slowly, some of this came back and I ended up fixing it and just kind of a, not a permanent fix because when I came to South Africa, I got the proper fix done, but it was enough to carry me on further. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's just, just, just to, uh, you know, something that you've learned back home that came in usefully, you know, thousands of uh, miles further down the road uh, that, that you'd have been stuck without it. So absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So when you eventually set off, right at the beginning. How much money did you leave home with then? I have just over $2,000. I think it was 2300 uh, and change. And my idea was I went to uh, different magazines because I had my background as a photographer and I'd been writing some articles uh, now and then. So I went and said, hey, can, I, can you guys sponsor me and take my... And everyone said that sounds great, just send something, but they couldn't commit with a contract. It was not like I got the paycheck every month. So I started that way, and uh, that's how I got into writing stories and stuff as I was traveling yeah. and getting money that way. So the 2300 carried me for two years, but I got supplement from the articles I was writing to. Not big money, but enough to... Uh, feed the gasoline and get new tires and some boxes of sardine and rice on the way yeah that's what it's all about isn't it keeping the trip going and it, i mean it, it obviously worked for you because your pictures and your stories they were published all over the world and and you know it was part of the reason that it helped you stay on the road for about 10 years because i think you ro rode about a quarter of a million miles through 77 countries in the end so i just wanted to ask you because i think the r80gs that you'd nicknamed Olga um, she ended up in the BMW Museum in recognition of your achievement so tell us the story behind this well up through the years when I took off you know I was nobody no uh, I didn't have a name uh, nowhere except for my family and friends of course but uh, so as when you start writing for magazines people get to know you, you get some kind of recognition so BMW in Porto in Norway they agreed to send me some parts and this kind of happened after Africa. I kind of proven I could do two years around Africa, come back to Norway, stay over winter, and then I took off again. And then I started to get some sponsorship. And I also, BMW in Germany, uh, I screamed out for help when my front fork broke down in Malawi, and they helped out. And I got to meet a guy called Hans Sauter in BMW Germany. He's now retired. But he was the press guy there, and uh, we worked together on different projects and stuff. And at the end, he said, oh, I would really like to have your bike at the BMW Museum, can we make? But I, I have problems convincing the BMW uh, corporate part of it, you know, the whole deal. So can you send me a copy of all your articles? And I said, really? You want all? So it was quite, it was... I wouldn't say thousands, but there were hundreds and hundreds of articles, and I printed them out and made copies and sent a big box, and immediately called back and said, oh, we have it. I mean, with that volume, that's great, no problem. So in 93, I wrote it down there, and, uh, and it was quite emotional to say goodbye to Olga because I think we all as motorcyclists even though it's just a lump of uh, electronics metal and plastic you know put together but 
every time I was sick or delayed, she was just sitting there waiting for me to uh, fire her up and go again, you know. And when she broke down, I had to be patient and wait for her too. So it was this relationship there. And uh, they gave me a new 1100 GS, beautiful bike. It had something they called ABS and fuel injection. I was really skeptical about all of that. But it was a good transition. But instead of her sitting in my garage, you know, she could inspire hopefully somebody else. Yeah, I can understand why you did it now. Yeah, absolutely. And and you knew where to find her if you needed her as well. And I believe you've been back a few times. So totally understand that. Now, I gather you hadn't planned to write a book about your travels, but that a publisher contacted you. What happened there, Helga? Well, you know, I'd been writing for uh, 10 years for Scandinavian magazines, one magazine in Norway uh, all the time. So and that's how I uh, built up, could you say, my name. And I, I made a living of that. That was great. And I had a lot of pictures, came home and uh, talked to a publisher. And he said, hey, would you like to look at the idea of making a book? And I said, well, I don't know if I can make a book. And then, But then the publisher that was specializing in adventure they were always about going the Norwegian you know we are big on skiing and stuff going to the North Pole to the South Pole backward upside down whatever they do it you know all kind of ways of doing it but they never had anybody with motorcycles so I thought well that could be a good uh, opportunity to promote that sport because it has a stigma you know motorcycle health angels and people a little uh, opposed to the whole idea so I thought oh this is a great idea because I felt like a cultural ambassador when I were writing my articles. I'm not the one that write all about just the technical this and that. I also like to embed myself and stay with people. Most of the time I travel, I met local peoples, lived with them, put my tent up outside or stayed in their homes. And I just want to tell about how a family in Somalia made their living and how what beautiful people they are except for what we see on the news which give a total different view absolutely so. yeah and you know as i said you've 77 countries 400,000 kilometers that you know we could do a podcast literally about every continent that you've been to and all the countries within that but the book itself it was published in what year i think it was 93 in norway in norwegian language first so the publisher they printed, I think it was 8,000 copies. And Norway is only 5 million people, so that was quite a big run for them. And uh, and then I came over to the U.S. I moved to the U.S. in 93 uh, and uh, translated it and did a self-publishing because everybody here, they they wanted to make a paperback. Just They had a formula for it, so I said, no, I'm a photographer. I'm proud of my photography. I would like to do that. Anyway, so, yeah, 93, it came out first. Yeah, and it's got one of my, I think, not one of my, but I would say my favourite adventure motorcycling photo, I think, of all time, and it's the one that's on the cover. And I've always wondered exactly what the story is behind this, and if 
for all those who are listening, if you just Google 10 Years on Two Wheels, Helga Pedersen, you will be able to see a cover of this book. And uh, I'll let Helga describe it because it's it's a beautiful picture, but there's surely a story behind it too. And I think it involves the uh, Darien Gap. Yeah, the picture is uh, the bike, Olga, in a dugout canoe in the Darien Gap. Darien Gap is between Panama and Colombia, or I should say Colombia and Panama, because I came from the south. Uh, and uh, that's the only way north if you want to go by land. But normally people don't go through there. I was just stupid. I had no idea <laughs> that this was ridiculous to go through there. But but I'd heard, I met some journalists in Peru and... Uh, Sometimes I contact a journalist just because I was a journalist myself and you get stories and you can trade information. And they say, what are you going to do when you come to Colombia? Well, I'm just going to follow the road north. And they there are no road. Oh, really? So long story short, they told about somebody that gone through with a, a, a car. It was the Upton expedition from the US and they used several years and blah, blah, blah. But the, So I thought if they had done it with a car, a bike with a piece of, piece of cake. So I come up there, didn't get uh, permission to go in because it was the rainy season and I had to ask for or have a written permission from Bogota in Colombia. So I applied for it. It would take a month and by that time the dry season would come around in February. And I traveled around and one day I was camped outside a hotel because I was saving money. And in the bar in the evening, I met a lovely lady and she said, oh, you have to meet this guy. He worked for Encounter Overland from Britain. And he uh, take customers on custom tours walking through there. And I think he's coming with a, a few guys next week or something. Anyway, I came back, met him. We sat down, made a map about it. And I said, yeah, it's going to be tough for you, but you need somebody else to help you and you need a rope, uh, pulleys, and I was like, wow, this is going to be quite something. And at the same time, another guy came and camped in the, the back of the hotel, also a backpacker on a low budget, and it was Joachim Quernheim from Germany. He had just been robbed in Venezuela. He had some problems with the Colombian police that extracted some money from him, so he was like kind of fed up. And I said, let's go to the jungle. Why don't you help me through there? It will be fun. And he got fired up about that. He was adventurous long. And he was really strong, fit guy. So I thought, oh, and he's German. Germans are very stubborn. Norwegian are pretty stubborn, but Germans are very stubborn. <laughs> so I thought that combination, that team there. And so we used 20 days going to uh, uh, 80 miles, so 120 kilometers or so. And it was the toughest I ever done. But this picture you asked about, so that was part of it. Uh, there was a river uh, we went up and the locals took us there. So when I took the picture, for me, what I see it in, it's uh, going in, what it makes it a good picture as a photographer is going into the unknown. You see the green and going into the black hole of the jungle, so to speak. But it's, it opens up for all kind of avenues. You never know, you know, you set out on an adventure. 
If you take a right, perhaps you meet your wife. If you take a left, you meet another wife. See what I mean? It, it's just possibilities everywhere. And uh, there's little girl sleeping there. It's a nine-year-old little girl, uh, one of the Kuna Indians. And Joachim is sitting with his hat on in the front, kind of the explorer looking into the future. So, yeah, that ended up being the picture because of what I just said. And you were you were standing in the back of the dugout canoe with the yeah, with, the, with the, the GS sort of laying on its side, balanced and and trying to trying to sort of get all that perspective right and take that picture. I think I yeah. saw it. I think it must have been published in Bike Magazine in the UK. I think that was maybe where I first saw the picture. You know, sort of in a a full A4 size, maybe one of those magazines, but. So just to put this in perspective, because we recently had Dylan Wickrama on the podcast, and, and of course he was telling us his story of avoiding the Darien Gap by turning his R1150 GS Adventure, Bruce that he called it, into a powered raft, and he headed oh, yeah. out into the Pacific Ocean to get from Panama to Colombia. But of course yeah. you did you did the opposite. You purposely tried to get your GS through this 120 kilometers, as you say. Of, I mean, it's hilly, roadless swamp, and mm. it's it's dense jungle so just put it into perspective it was just the two of you you and Joachim and this R80GS but how much did that bike weigh fully loaded too much <laughs> I, honestly I don't really know how much it weighed but just to give you some technical stuff when we when we came there many times we took the aluminum panniers off carried them a kilometer or two and then drop them and at that time we could also on the way back we could clean the track we had manchettes these big jungle knives cutting our way and preparing for the bike and one of the first days we were there uh, going up a hill and i didn't realize that the jungle would be that hilly but it really is steep hills many places and muddy and so and i was just giving it too much gas and i got that involuntarily up on a wheelie and totally lost control through the bike to one side so it shouldn't crush me. But my hand landed on a rock and it broke uh, the bone up here on top of the hand. I didn't know it was broken at the time, but obviously it hurt pretty bad. And uh, so, yeah, it was a monstrous bike. Plus, it was an air-cooled bike. And that's a disadvantage when you don't have any flow to it. So I ended up getting what they call... Uh, vapor lock i didn't know what it was at the time but uh, basically vapor lock is uh, boiling the, boiling, boiling the gasoline in, yeah in the carburetor it's no fuel injection so i ended up and thought oh shoot what can we do we need to cool it down so i just took out the air filter and it's not a lot of dust and it's not too bad i don't think it really harmed the engine too much uh, and the other problem was uh, the battery were getting low because I didn't have a lot of high RPM over a consistent period to charge the battery. Okay, so, so at least you had I a started, kickstart. Yeah, so I started using the kickstarter. And uh, yeah, it was a heavy beast. And, uh, you know, I had plenty of fuel because I have 40 liters. So we used that for cooking uh, food and stuff too. So yeah god that's, that's incredible i was wondering what was actually in your survival kits for this crossing because you know obviously you had to carry all of your supplies with you because there there's no people and there's no food out there apart from insects and animals i guess and and the indigenous people that are scattered about 
well, we we didn't see almost two weeks. I think we didn't see anybody else. And you have to remember, this is not a road; it's a man-made trail. So the Indians go there and cut with the manchetti only in the dry season, which is two months out of the year. The rest of the year is flooded. Danny Liska write a good story in his book. Uh, about crossing the Darien, he shipped his bike around and walked through, but he did it in the rainy season, totally crazy. I interviewed him before he passed away many, many years ago, and it was an incredible story he had, and it was just flooding and rivers being dragged on the river, and yeah, it's quite quite an area. And then, of course, you know, you said you didn't see people for a couple of weeks, but you weren't alone, were you? Because you had plenty of company, like scorpions, giant spiders, mosquitoes, killer bees, I've heard, maybe even, what, vampire bats, leeches and ticks. I mean, just thinking about these creatures, it makes my skin crawl, Helga, but you were literally having your blood sucked every night, weren't you? Yeah, the ticks was the worst one. And... So you walk in and me, we were sitting, can you imagine, all day we've been working, sweating and just burning fuel like no tomorrow. And we thought we had enough fu- uh, food with us and we actually, we ate it up faster than we thought. And we had to abandon the bike and go to an Indian village to get some food and come back and get it. But uh, at night we will sit and pick off. And I think one night we come counted around 156 I think ticks on Joachim but then in the morning in the groin and under your arm where it's warm and soft and stuff you will find the ones that you missed and they were full of blood and big at night I was sleeping in a hammock he was sleeping in his tent Uh, you could if your leg had been outside you could have been bitten by uh, vampire bats and they are they can inject and suck your blood and they could have rabies. So you had to be careful about that. Uh, I took uh, grease on the rope to the hammock. Uh, like I, some, I had some Vaseline and I had some grease I, I used because of the ants coming on and they would bite you. And then the mosquito will bite through your hammock from the bottom. Uh, so I put plastic on the bottom there so they couldn't <laughs> bite through. I had mosquito net over it. But I think the worst was the African killer bees because they were very ter- territorial. And when they attack, they bite you. You just have to run through the thickest brush you can find so they can't follow you. But when you was quiet and you didn't do anything, they just come and land on you, and as long as you don't panic, they just check you out and they fly away. But immediately when you start cutting brush around where they, their territory is, they will get after you. So I had nightmares about all of this. We were pretty drained psychologically and physically. Uh, so when I come up to Panama, uh, after the 20 days, I had broken some ribs, the hand, but the worst was the ticks because at night I would scratch involuntarily and I got infected legs. So you can look at your own leg and you see the thickest of your calves, you know, under the knee. It was solid, that thickness, all the way down to the foot. So I went to a, a doctor and he said, yeah, you've broken this and this, you need to take it easy, blah, blah, blah. But the infection is the worst. So I need antibiotic injections for 10 days. So I went to this pharmacy and this big babushka lady you know she just normally a nice nurse should 
massage you a little and then gently inject you. Oh no, she didn't have time for that. I stay in a corner, take my pants halfway down and she just take that needle into my buttocks and... Straight in there. Oh gosh, I had a nightmare about her. I still cringe when I think about her. Nice enough woman, but she was just... Didn't have time for any pity thing there. Oh, can I tell you what? Sometimes when you're traveling, you really do feel a long way from home, you know, but I don't think I've ever felt as, as far from home as you must have felt during some of those moments. But just going back to being inside the jungle at the moment, because you, you did mention rope and pulleys. I mean, you know, putting the creepy crawlies to one side for a minute, anyone who's had to push a GS uphill in any kind of situation knows how energy sapping a task that is. And, and you couldn't, you really couldn't ride much because there were no roads. And, and you, you said you had to clear a, you know, your passage with machetes, but this was no flat land, was it? It was hilly terrain, as you say. So how did, how did the two of you manhandle Olga up and over those hills in those conditions? Because, I just can't bring myself to imagine how you did that. Well, uh, sometimes we were able to just push and, you know, walk it and use the clutch and stuff. But there were some hills that were particularly steep. And what we did, we cleaned it as much as we could. I picked up whatever I could of speed and rode for my dear life. And when I knew that, and I didn't want to uh, flip it over again because I already broken the hand, the left one there. And uh, then I just threw it on the bike. And that's nice with a boxer because, you know, you just plant it into the ground and it doesn't uh, start sliding back so easy. So imagine that. The front wheel is up, bike is on the side, fine. The first thing I do, turn off the gasoline. So And I also had a tube on the top so it didn't go out of the top. Uh, then we will secure the top to a tree and get the rope on the rear end. I will go to a smaller tree that was a weaker tree. I climb up and tie a rope to that, take it down to the pulley on the rear of the bike, and then together with the force of the tree that's now being bent over, then you have static force, I guess, going up, but the bike were dug in, so all we need to do was lift the bike up, and then the tree start to straighten up, and then we repeat, use the pulley, load up. It's like a bow and arrow kind of a principle. Load it up again and lift it around, and then secure the back, and then get the front up, so it was like zigzagging up the hill. That was the worst of them. It was not many of them, but uh, perhaps half a dozen that it was really, and I have some pictures on my web page and also if you look on youtube there's a video about you can see some picture about that it was just drawings on a piece of paper you know the map so i needed to navigate and find out and only thing we had was a compass no gps at that time this is 1988 we are talking about now and I was so sick and tired of these up and down up and down and there was the same river that we came to so and it was not much water so i said to joachim why don't we make a the first water-cooled boxer engine <laughs> i didn't say it like that but when looking back at it it's kind of funny <laughs> yeah. to say that because we ended up actually re driving in the river yeah we got stuck and stuff but those challenges was less than taking it over the hill plus 
we had water to cool off ourselves, and the engine ran much cooler too, because it overheated so many times uh, the other time. So, uh, going in the river on the river banks and in the middle of the river, uh, that helped a lot. Yeah, unbelievable. That pulley system that you had, I, I can just imagine this becoming one of the challenges in a future international GS Trophy event. So watch this space. I think we maybe need to draw a few diagrams and get that one worked out. I'm just interested to know, in the middle of the jungle, how did you know when you'd actually left Colombia and crossed into Panama then? Well, we came to a spot that uh, there were. we knew that we were getting closer to the border and we... We had left the bike behind, we were carrying the bags, and we came to a little opening, and it was like on the top of a hill, and there was uh, some rocks, a little platform, and it was a brass bracket, and it said Colombia. It didn't say Panama, but we understood, and we, I'd heard from the guy from Encounter Overland that have told me yeah, that is the border when you come there. So that's when we knew it. No people. We hadn't seen people for days, and we wouldn't see people for several days going forward either. But we knew, okay, at least we are going, and I knew with the compass, we are going north, <laughs> more or less north-west, uh, I think it was sometime, yeah. Wow. I'm just wondering how bad the two of you must have smelt when you arrived in civilization, you know, uh, what condition you were in, and, and I'm wondering what the locals made of you. Well, when we came to the first village, uh, Opaya, and uh, they saw the motorcycle and everything, you know, there was, everybody went crazy. Yeah, they had seen expeditions go through there before, but, uh, you know, it's nothing that happened every year. <laughs> you know, it had been a British expedition many, many years ago. The army took some uh, corvettes through there, and then it was, the Opton was the latest one. And with Opton was also uh, another R80GS that went through, and that was, uh, or it stopped up now, what's his name? Ed Culberson. He wrote a book called uh, Obsession Die Hard. And he had followed the Opton expedition for three years to get his bike through there. So that was his struggle. So I think my advantage was stupidity naivety and persistence because when i came to colombia my option was to ship around it's complicated it would cost money could fly over will cost uh, money too so i thought and it was all about saving money and and then when i got more into it you know it was like oh this is no this is a game now this sounds fun this is going to be great but I tell you, if I'd known what it were going to be like, I would never do it. I would never do it again. It was one of these things, you hold my bear, watch this, kind of deal, you do it once and <laughs> never going to do it again. Yes, yeah, benefit of hindsight, absolutely. What happened to Joaquin? Did, you, did the two of you stay in touch? Do you still hear from him at all? Or? Yeah, that was funny with him because he, he never ridden a motorcycle. He was a backpacker. And when I broke my hand, I wanted to teach him to... Uh, ride my bike you know perhaps he could do it then the jungle is not a place to learn to ride a big bmw bike but when uh, and we parted uh, ways in panama uh, i stayed longer because i had these broken bones and stuff so i stayed at alfred air base it was an american air base at the road knights motorcycle club and he took off and then 
of course, we kept in contact and he wrote me and said, Helge, I got my motorcycle license. I'm buying a R100 uh, GS. No kidding, I said. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he started an outdoor uh, equipment store. And uh, then he came over to Seattle, stayed with me there and traveled around with his girlfriend. So two times I've seen him over in the U.S. He traveled on a Beamer all over the United States. And he have no two outdoor shops. I visited him in Germany a couple of times. And yeah, it was quite neat. Who would have thought that he would become a motorcyclist after what he went through? Yeah. Think he would hate the thing. Yeah. Well, I guess he can uh, dine out on the uh, story for the rest of his life, though, can't he? So it, oh, it yeah. makes sense in that way. But what or who inspired you then when the trip was over to eventually put down roots in the USA? Well, it's like everything, you know, it's a lady. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny story because uh, I've done what I've done. We just said no. So I'm still going up uh, Central America and there was a war in Nicaragua. So a little dodgy coming through there. So I kind of had it with action. I needed a little downtime. So I took a right when I come up into Mexico or to the Yucatan Peninsula. I come by Tulum. There were some Maya ruins I want to see there uh, before going up to Cancun and the other ruins. And there was this bike leaning up against the shack. And it was it was a gravel or sandy road. So I kind of, you know how it is in the sand. If you don't commit, you're not going to make it. So, you know, I had good speed and I saw it. And I thought, this was no Mexican bike. It was a big, it looked like a motogussi, the cylinders kind of sticking up there. But I couldn't really stop there because I would crash. So I found a place, turned around, come back, and I said, yeah, good time for a lunch break. Here I meet, meet Dana Payne. He was from Seattle on his yearly uh, outing. And this time he chose to ride all the way from Seattle down to the Yukonan Peninsula. And he said, hey, I have a mask and fins. Uh, if you want to do some snorkeling, you're welcome. So I ended up staying there, making friends with him. Fast forward, come up to Seattle, and he said, please come and visit me. And by that time, we were good friends, really nice guy. I liked him a lot. So he said, you can stay with me. And I stayed with him. And he worked at Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. And that's what I met that later became my wife, Karen. And... Uh, you know, that's how I sat down and decided to uh, live in Seattle. So in 93, I moved over and I lived here ever since. Yeah, and you founded uh, Globe Riders, your own adventure travel company. Do you think it's still possible to have an adventure like you had in the 1980s? Is that still possible these days? You know, I, I'm i 65 now. I'm going to be 66 probably by the time you get this out on the air, but uh, uh, very soon here. Uh, and I'm looking at all what's going on and I see YouTube and people doing things and stuff and I'm thinking, oh, it's not like what when I did it. And I remember when I were a kid, our parents told that about us. Oh, in my time, we did it this way. So I think I'm just going to shut up and accept the way it is. In the way, when I say that in that way, I mean, I have to have respect for the people that are doing it in their way today because there's not one way that's right and one that's wrong. What I feel, though, is I feel sorry and pity in a way for people that taking off today 
to see the world because there's so much pressure. You have to have a Facebook account, a Instagram account, a Twitter account. You have to report all the time. And I even see it on overtures that is very manicured and very structured. But people, they are so busy in the evening writing and updating their social media uh, outlets to be seen. Yeah, that's great for family and stuff. But And sometimes I have pep talks with them and saying, hey, are you really on this tour or are you just playing a video game and recording and broadcasting to the world what you are? What about just let's go out and drink with the locals or join a play at the theater or whatever and and be where we are. And sure, you can take pictures and stuff and I can totally appreciate that. But I think there's a fine line and it can be a lot of peer pressure for the younger people today to have to overperform almost to get so and so many likes and so and so many views on your videos and all of that. So it's different, but there but let me also shoot in there that it's opened up tremendously because when I traveled through South America, for example, or Africa, I didn't meet anybody. I met less than a handful of peop other people that was all traveling and on motorcycles was very rare. Today, when we do our tours in South America, we met, meet dozens of people. And it's so great because they've been encouraged by other people doing it. And also all the investigation you can do on the Internet and find out which border is open, where is the road, this and that. And you have all of this information. So that's absolutely the uplift. So, yeah, it's different and it will always be different when... Uh, when your son is going to take off and when you are old man sitting there with your bourbon and in your rocking chair, he's going to do it totally different than what you did it, Andy. So, yeah, it's life. Yeah, it's yeah, life. yeah. you've got to go with the flow. I mean, but I, I totally get what you're saying because how many chances do you just get to disappear yeah. and go off grid for a few weeks and pe people don't realise that actually that is a real privilege. Just you can tell all the stories when you get back. You don't have to update it every half an hour or so. So, yeah, that's interesting. One of my questions to you was going to be, you know, what advice, if you had to offer one piece of advice to, to budding adventure travellers, I guess you've probably already answered that um, by sort of saying, you know, take your time, look, don't document everything and just be in the moment. But I'll actually ask you, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Or oh, the the best one was uh, not have too many plants, and and what you just touch on uh, the best currency you can travel with is time. You can never have too much of that. You can't buy it. You can't uh, borrow it from others. You have what you have. You don't know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. Do the best out of today. So I would say, yeah, uh, don't over plan it and have take as much time as you can. When I took off in 1982, people, that was the biggest question I got, and they, they got mad at me when I couldn't answer it. They said, so how long are you going to be gone? They wanted to see a structure to it. They want to see a start, middle, and an ending to it. And I said, this is the start, and we will see where it takes me. And I, I was just going to visit my friend in Tanzania. What are we going to, It ended up taking two years. So what? And then when I took off again, I didn't see family and friends for five years. I was literally physically gone for five years. And then a magazine flew me back for two months. 
and then I took off again. So that's another thing. I think that was a mistake from my side. I would recommend not going away for years and years and years. So my advice, again, besides the other one was take it in small portions because it's very intense to be on the road. So when you, Andy, went out there for a year, I bet you you had so many memories that you needed to process after you come back. I stayed too much on the road. I think it could have been good if I'd had the money and a different structure to my travels to take it in smaller portions. So that would be another advice. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's all about balance, isn't it? Like a lot of things. Now, Yeah. since those early days on Olga, you've probably ridden most of the GS model variations over the past 40 years. So how good do you think the latest variations are for adventure touring straight out of the box? Well, I think they... I'm opposite to many people's and some people get mad at me when I put on the R80GS because it's like the trophy you have and take out that. Uh, I had my share of problems and it was ideal machine for that. At that time, it was top of the line. Today, I have uh, 2018 uh, 1200 GSA and I love it. It's gotten better every iteration I got. I was skeptical, like I said, when BMW gave me the 1100 ABS and fuel injection. What the heck is that? And how am I going to deal with it? And it's like all changes in life. You know, you get a new car, you get a new whatever, and it takes a little before you get used to it. And that's the thing. You have to give it a chance. And I've done that. I had every different model up through the years, and I, I tend to gravitate towards the GSA, with the longer range and stuff and feel comfortable with those bikes. But every time I get a new one and know the water cooled, I just love it. Yeah. And I hear you've been getting into sidecars also. So what's the story there? Well, that's the good thing with that water cooled engine too, because the sidecar is, it's not natural for a bike to have a third wheel on the side and a big bucket uh, dragging around a sack of potato or whatever you have. But uh, I've seen on my trips and it started with mike paul a good friend of mine and he uh, has a company lbs uh, in uh, seattle now working with the lbs in holland they make sidecars he unfortunately lost his left leg on one of our uh, uh, tours in siberia a really bad accident but the guy is a power hose i mean Two years later, he was back with the Porteses and a sidecar doing the same tour. And he's been my inspiration for getting into sidecar. Plus, I've had other people on the tour, like uh, Bill and Marty, two guys traveling on a sidecar, 1200 GS. It's so different. First, when I saw it, yeah, I can understand Mike. He he couldn't support uh, a solo bike with his legs, so he got a three. He had a good excuse to it. But then I see other people that really could ride just a solo bike. I thought so. That was my limited way of thinking, and I kind of brushed it off. But then I saw how much fun they had every time they stopped. So here's a good example. Marty and Bill is in front of me. We are going in Iran and traveling to the back country and people are waving to them and they see me they don't even see me and i'm in front of them i i come there first they don't look and then they see the side and it's like oh they are looking and they are waving and then we stop and they take some kids in the sidecar and it's every time they stop they have more attention 
not that I need attention every minute of the day because sometimes it actually can be bothersome to have too much attention but I think what made motorcycling what it was for me was that I didn't sit in a box I was exposed to people and we talk about the bike and this and now we are talking like you say uh, the sidecar but that's just an introduction and it's uh, it's an opening act to talk about culture, politics, to have a cup of tea, uh, share a meal with these people. And that's what traveling about. And I saw that was just magnified so much with sidecars. So I said, well, I'm not getting younger. One day my knees are going to give in, my hip, whatever, and I need a little helping hand here. Why don't I try this? So I can't go wrong. In Washington State, you have to have a, a license for sidecars. So got that and got on a bike and I really liked it and I got built up a bike that if you go to YouTube you can see sidecar Helge Pedersen you will see it but uh, we called it Big, Big Red I took that to South America from Colombia to Tierra del Fuego didn't have much experience but I loved it it was great and now actually I'm waiting for a new one coming from Germany that the Mobeck in Germany is building for me and I also have uh, a wife that's not very tall and to sit on the back behind me is not really good. So she loves to sit in the sidecar and uh, so that's good for her too. I think the other thing, I mean, certainly from watching a couple of your videos is, is obviously there's the new challenge of, of teaching yourself a whole new riding technique because oh, they yeah. don't behave anywhere near the same way as a motorcycle. But there's also the fact that, you know, I saw you riding in snow, saw you riding in really... Um, quite tricky conditions where people would would be let's face it you know a lot of people would be wobbling around crashing in all sorts of trouble on two wheels but just having that third wheel just means you can effectively sit back enjoy the ride and have all sorts of fun maybe even taking pictures and video of those around you um, getting into all sorts of bother yeah you talk like a guy that never tried it have you tried it i've never tried it no it's a lot of work, Andy. <laughs> it's not, yeah, when you go straight, you can relax, you can take pictures. But immediately, as long as you are in London or in England, I know you would have the sidecar on the left, I have it on the right. But so for me, when I go a right turn, if I go too fast, it will flip over and I would be crushed. So you, and that's the biggest mistake people do. They think, oh, this is going to be easy. You really have to understand what it's all about. So I highly recommend somebody that's used to two wheels and get a third wheel, do a class, do a safety foundation class here. I'm sure in Britain and Germany, everywhere, they have different classes. So, And the older you get the more imprinted you are on the two wheels and the principle of that and it's just going to throw you off so fast and you can get into deep deep trouble but when you start to mastering it it really is fun but it's hard work it really is i remember in colombia there was going down to medellin anyway there's all these curves hundreds of curves and you, your upper body just really, really feel it after a day. But it is so much fun, though. And I would say that we talked about old bikes and new bikes. Having 125 horsepower, or no, with the 1250, 135 or something, just having that and a water-cooled bike, it's perfect for a sidecar because you need that extra oomph. You, know, you need that extra power 
to draw with around uh, and plus you have the water cooling which is important I think with that and it's just it's a lot of fun but I still have a solo bike I have a 1200 uh, GSA uh, water cooled bike I love solo bike riding too I'm privileged I'm very lucky to have be able to have two of them yeah yeah now i understand why you uh why you've also taken up the sea kayaking because if it is mu- if it's as much as a of an upper body workout as you say sidecar riding is and then, then you need that upper body strength don't you so yeah interesting i'll have to give it a go one day for sure yeah. do, do you think it, it will also enable you to continue riding for a, a few more years as opposed to riding a two-wheeler or or not i would say that because uh look at it I, my customers, I'm just, these days, the pandemic is going on. I had to cancel 20th anniversary tour, which was really sad earlier this year. Uh, I had 21 people who were going to go from Tokyo to Munich. So I'm sitting at home here and uh, planning the next tour and stuff. We are going to Himalaya, hopefully in September 2021. My customer base is people that are 60, pressing on 70. Some are, I even have up to 78 years old uh, going with it some in remarkable shape but i see as you get up into that age what is the challenge the challenge is balance and keeping the bike and the strength to holding it up on a sidecar yeah there's strength involved too but the balance is not so if you don't have the strength to go you just slow down and go slower you are not losing your balance because that third third wheel take care of it so uh, I was serious when I said that this is perhaps uh, a way for preparing for stretching my ability to travel the world longer. And I'm looking into retiring now. I'm going to do my last tour in 2023. Cape to Cairo will be the last one I do for Globe Riders. And then Lisa and me, we want to start traveling. And people say, well, haven't you traveled enough in your life? Well, I've been taking care of people traveling and it's been a privilege. It's been great. I've gotten, I feel proud of it, gotten people that never would travel to these countries and doing what they have done uh, without having uh, the possibility to do it with Globe Riders. But it's work. I want to do it together with Lisa and me and we want to see and have our own dream and bucket list fulfillment. It's a big world out there. Fantastic! I love the idea that you uh, you're going to retire so you can do some travelling. That's that's absolutely brilliant. Before you do retire in 2023 or when, whenever you do decide, Helga, I really hope that we get to see you over in Europe at some point soon because it would be great to see one of those multimedia presentations I've heard so much about. And I don't know, perhaps at BMW Motorrad Days in Berlin in 2021. I'm just putting it out there for people to think <laughs> about and consider anyway. But where can people find you or contact you for more information about your adventure touring program? Well, you can go to globeriders.com. It's easy, globe and riding, so globeriders.com. Even if you don't go traveling me and uh, with me and just to want to learn about what we have been doing and see, go when you go to the webpage at globeriders.com, you go to uh, journals, and we have archived tours all the way back from 2005. So dozens of tours all over the world, and you can read not just my propaganda, but you read stories from each individual they tell their own stories their own pictures and stuff and there are thousands of pictures and stories so it's a nice little resource among everything else you can find on the internet 
Brilliant. I'll be sure to look those up myself. Helga, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks ever so much for talking to us today. And I really do hope to meet you in person out on the road somewhere soon in the future. Same to you, Andy. And if you ever come out here, I'm going to introduce you to kayaking. Kayaking is a great sport too. (laughs) So it was nice talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Helga. I really enjoyed this chat. Even though there are about 8,000 kilometers between us. Amazing what technology can do to bridge distances, eh? Not like the old days, of course. But then those days were also pretty special in a different way, according to the stories you shared with us today. Thanks to everyone for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed that hour in Helga's company as much as I have. Take care and stay safe out there. Bye for now.